<clears throat> so all uh, people at some point in their lives find themselves on the outside looking in. We find ourselves in a place where this one group of people over here, or maybe uh, another one over there, who are in some ways different than we are, uh, they are alike with those within their group, but we don't quite fit in. Now that difference in some ways sets them apart. And sometimes the difference is innocuous. Uh, it's based on some common interest that people share. So you can think here about football. There are Ravens fans and there are Redskins fans and never the twain shall meet. And there is even the occasional and oddball cowboy fans like our Brian Brunel. <laughs> Who's... I'm picking on him. He's not here. You know, the supporters of the Ravens and Redskins have a quite a rivalry going on, of course, right? And they enjoy poking fun at each other. While they extol, if they can, if the season allows, they extol the virtues of their own team. And, and though they may be rivals, they gladly join forces uh, against the Bryans in their midst. Now, we know, don't we, that uh, sometimes people get carried away over what's really just a game, and they display real animosity. But most of the time, it's all in good fun, and everyone gets a lot of joy out of it. And it's really not exclusionary either. You know, a Ravens fan would love nothing better than to have a Redskins fan finally admit the error of his or her way. Well, that's never going to happen, is it? Because they'd never live it down, right? That you used to be a fan of that team. And even those of us who are not all that into football can enjoy that kind of back-and-forth banter between the fans. But there are other groups of people who have set themselves apart, and they are exclusionary, and they won't let other people within their circle. Uh, such groups... Uh, well, we refer to them as cliques, and the people in them think they are somehow, in some way, better than those on the outside. Or, to their detriment, they enjoy their own company much too much and ignore everyone else. Now, there are two ways that people who find themselves uh, in that position on the outside of a group like that can commonly react. I mean, we can wish we were on the inside of the group, and... We can set about trying to do things uh, which will get their attention and maybe get them to open up the circle for us. It's never a very attractive picture when we see that. Even if the person on the outside doesn't start by looking down on others or ignoring them, it soon becomes necessary for that's part uh, of the glue which holds uh, that kind of coterie together. The very fact that someone wants to join hands with such people who are so exclusionary saddens us. And we recognize easily enough uh, the mature, immaturity in it, don't we? At least when we see it in someone else. We, we can think back to our days in junior and senior high school, and we remember what it, it felt like, to have that longing to belong. We remember what that feels like. And yet it's more prevalent among adults than we might like to admit. So even adults, we could try to gain admittance to such a group. 
or we could take a more thoughtful approach. We, we could admit there is something about that group of people which does indeed make them different. Uh, the thing may be entirely un, un, unattractive to us, or it might be something that we can admire, something that we could never have, yet we might want. I mean, our looks are our looks, and what we are as athletes is not likely to change. I can't sing, though I wish I could. I said that to my wife this week, and she said, oh, you're not that bad. <laughs> you're not that bad. That's not what I mean. I don't want to be not that bad. I want to be good. But we can admit all of that, right? We, we can admire their gifts, all the while understanding that their giftedness has become a snare to them. They shut out the rest of humanity. They exalt themselves. They look down on or ignore everyone else. And when we see them as they really are, it ought to sadden us. For all the good that such people might have, they're really quite small and empty. And mostly, they don't even know it. Now, the question is, what does this have to do with us here in this room? Uh, other than the fact that, well, like everyone else, we have to deal with such things as we make our way through this world. Well, you and I, most of us here within these four walls and under this roof, we are different than most of the people out there. We are Christians. We have been born again. We are followers of Jesus Christ who died on that cross to save us from our sins. We're forgiven, and we're part of the family of God. And we've been told by our Savior that we are the light of the world. And last week we talked about that, and remember, we said that when we say that we are brothers and sisters, we mean it. Uh, the love we have for each other is... It's like the love others have for their immediate family, and yet even better because we're going to put the other person first. We understand there's a difference between us and those on the outside. Indeed, we talk about those who are on the outside. Uh, we refer to them even in that way as those on the outside. But when we talk about them, it's not in a malicious way. And it's not because we think we are any better than they are. We know we're not. We talk about them because we want them to become as we are. Only we want them to be able to sing even if we can't. Our circle's not closed. It's, it's open. At least it should be. And yet, let's be honest, shall we? If you're a follower of Christ, you have met those who, who claim to be Christian and who maybe really are Christians. I, I don't know. It's not my place to judge. But you've met those who have drawn that circle tight around themselves, shutting out everyone else while they think that they are better than those on the outside. And if some of those school days clicks were ugly and the adult coteries, uh, coteries in our culture are repugnant, nothing is quite as ugly or offensive as Christians who have closed their circle. Paul understood that. 
So after he talked to the people in Rome about how they should live with and treat their fellow believer, he then addresses, he, he describes the heart of a Christian as it should be in relation to those who are on the outside of the faith. And that's our topic today. We want to ask and answer the question, what should our heart look like as we interact with those who are not Christians. And so I would invite you to join me again in the book of Romans, chapter 12, where we're going to be considering verses 14 through 16, and of course the text will be up on the screen on either side of me. Now again, just like last week, we're in a part of the Bible which requires a good bit of explanation, and you and I know that's not easy to do or listen to. But again, just like last week, if you stay with the text as we make our way through, you'll come out on the other side with a better understanding of the historic Christian faith as it has been practiced down through the centuries. Now, we're still in that part of the text that um, theologians sometimes refer to as a paranysis. Uh, that is, it's a kind of a hodgepodge of thoughts thrown together without a whole lot of organization. And that's certainly what it looks like when we read the English. But as I mentioned last week, the Greek text, which was the language that the New Testament was written in, displays quite a bit more organization, both grammatically and structurally. And so it's possible when looking at the Greek to divide the section of Scripture from 9 through 21 that's where we are in our study, into two or three, and I think it's three, different sections, each uh, addressing a kind of related topic, but distinct. And last week, as I've just said, in verses 10 through 13, it describes how Christians ought to live with and treat other believers. This week, verses six, uh, 14 through 16, form its own section in the Greek, telling us what our heart ought to be like when it comes to those on the outside. And on another Sunday, the text which follows will tell us how we treat those who mistreat us. Now, with that as a kind of introduction, let's see what God has to say to us this morning through his word. And the first thing we see is a command. We are commanded to bless other people. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now that first sentence there is a pretty good indicator, don't you think, that, that we're no longer talking about how Christians are to treat one another. The topic change could hardly be more clear. Bless those who persecute you. The Bible says that. Yet it's not all we read there. It goes on to say in another sentence, Bless and do not curse. And the question is, how are those two sentences in verse 14 related? I mean, it could be that that second sentence emphasizes the first by repeating and expanding upon it. So you'd have something like, bless those who mistreat you, hyphen, bless and don't curse them. But the context of the entire section... It indicates a different and better understanding. So after changing the topic dramatically by telling us to bless those who mistreat us, 
the Bible broadens the topic, reminding us that this is how we are to treat all people, even those who persecute us. We bless and we never curse. I mean, the reason we bless and don't curse, even those who mistreat us, is because that's how we, as followers of Christ, are to treat all people. That's what verse 14 tells us. And when it comes to those who are on that side of the faith, the heart of the believer ought to bless them and not curse them, even if they mistreat us. Yet to genuinely understand what this text means, we need to know the biblical definitions of two of the words which we just read. We need to know what it means to bless someone, and we need to know what it means not to curse people. So in our culture, we think of blessing as, a, as wishing nice thoughts to or on others. When we say things like, well, bless you... <laughs> And we mean by that, well, we hope something good happens to you because you've been so nice to me. Or someone sneezes and we say, bless you, either because we're superstitious or polite or because we hope they don't get sick. Sometimes we say the blessing before we eat, which we ought to do, but in some circles, anyway, as far as I can tell, it really means I hope the food doesn't make us sick when we eat it. But the Bible, the word blessing means more than wishing someone good. It means more even than trying to do good to them. It means seeking and desiring that Almighty God would do something good in that person's life. When, when a believer blesses those who persecute him, it means they want God to do good to them. It means we will pray for them that God will do in their life what God needs to do in their life. It's a corollary to our desire that God do good to them that makes us willing to do the same. And of course, that desire applies to all people and not just limited to persecutors. Now that doesn't mean that we try to think nice things about people like that and pretend that they're actually good people but misunderstood. Now, we can see them for as bad as they really are and yet, because we have been born again, because we're Christians who know firsthand what it means to be forgiven, we can seek God's blessing on them, even on those who mistreat us. We bless and we never curse, which is the next word we need to know. And again, in our culture, we think of cursing as either foul or profane language or wishing something bad upon another person. We say things like, she got angry and she cursed, meaning she used some four-letter words. Or as my grandmother would have said, her language was colored blue. Or someone may say, curse you and a horse you rode in on. And, and the language may not be lewd, but the heart is red with rage, and we want something bad to happen to another person. We recently were made aware of a state senator who wishes that our president would be assassinated. And she cursed him in her heart and in her words. 
And some of us need to be careful lest we become like her, cursing her in our thoughts for her evil thoughts. Yet that word cursing in the Bible means something more than what our culture means. It means more than foul language or desiring something bad would happen to another person. It means asking or desiring that almighty God would curse that person. It means you want God to damn that person. It means you want God to send them to hell. You understand something. The heart which embraces blue language or is red with rage so that it curses another human being is the same kind of heart that would condemn someone to hell. The difference is only of degree. That's not the kind of people we're to be. We're to be the kind of people who desire and seek God to bless all people, even those who persecute us. We're the kind of people who never curse others, who never want people to be damned, who don't want them to experience condemnation. At the end of the Civil War, when all kinds of people were taking advantage of uh, Southerners in those difficult days, a group of hot-blooded former rebels uh, managed to get an audience with President Lincoln, and his gentle and, and friendly manner soon thawed the ice, and, and they left that meeting with a new respect for their old foe. A northern congressman criticized Lincoln for befriending the enemy, suggesting that they should have been taken out and shot for the traitors that they were. Lincoln smiled and he replied, Am I not destroying my enemies by making them my friends? That's what we're supposed to do. We are to overcome evil by good. We are to, as much as is possible, make friends with all people. And, and even if they won't be our friends, we'll be theirs. And we'll seek God's blessing on them, and we will never curse them. Not only that, but the Word tells us something more. It tells us that we are to share in the life in life with our neighbors. In verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Or as I paraphrase it, we are to share life with our neighbors. Uh, I, I'm using the word neighbor in a generic sense, uh, much like the Bible uses it, it, to refer to other people, not just those who live near us. Verse 15 here that we just read is a mirrorism, and the Bible's full of them. Uh, I'll give you some examples. The term the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last one. And you put those together, it means you include everything in between, the deltas and the epsilons and the otis. And then there's the first and the last beginning and end, which includes not only the first and the last and the beginning and the end, but everything in between. And as those are applied to Jesus, it means he is our all in all. He is our everything. And verse 15 is a mirror in which a pair of thoughts expresses the totality of life. If you rejoice with those who rejoice and you mourn with those who mourn, then everything in between fits with those extremes. 
you're sharing life, all of life with your neighbors. You know, I really love that idea. We are not supposed to form some kind of fortress where we hide from the world. I mean, it's easy enough to do. I know that, but that's not what we're supposed to do. Biblically speaking, hell is the fortress, and we're supposed to be storming the gates. We are not of the world. We are in the world, so we can reach the world. So when you get together with your neighbors and play cards with the unbelievers, or if you have them over for a barbecue or invite them to a life group or a Bible study, you're sharing life with them. Or when you coach your son or daughter's uh, sports team, or you walk your neighbor's dog, or you tutor a child in school, though you may be the only Christian in the lot, you are behaving in a way that the Bible says you should. When you go to their funerals and weddings and sorrow with them and rejoice in their happiness, in your heart you are being, or you are trying to be, for we are all still sinners and we are all still on a journey, but you are what Christians are meant to be to the lost world around him or her. That doesn't mean you go on their bar crawls or drink too much at their weddings. You are a Christian. You are different. You don't have to draw attention to that. It'll, it'll show. It'll come out as you go about life. Think about it. If, if you become just like that, they'll never have any need to become like you. But you're sharing their life while you live out your faith. You'll be like a light in a dark place. And maybe, just maybe, they'll want what you have. And all we really have to offer them is Jesus. Everything else there is in life comes from him and is returning to him. So we seek God's blessing on all people, even those who are persecuting us, never harboring condemnation in our hearts. We do this as the kind of people who share life with our neighbors. Which brings us to verse 16. <laughs> and there are three thoughts contained in that one verse. They're all kind of similar, and all of them are descriptive in nature. They tell us what our heart ought to look like as we interact with those on the outside of the faith. And we're going to consider each of them briefly and in turn. And the first idea in uh, verse 16 is similar in a way to what we just looked at, but it's a approach from a different angle. It, it tells us as much as it is possible, we ought to get along with our neighbors. <laughs> Again, we're using neighbors in that generic sense, not just referring to people who live near us, but other people. So beginning in verse 16, it puts it this way, in the NAS, be of the same mind toward one another. And the New Jerusalem Bible give the same consideration to all others alike. And the New American Bible have the same regard for one another, but the NIV. And they really nail it here. They capture the sense of the Greek when it says, live in harmony with one another. As followers of Christ, we need to get along with our neighbors if at all possible. You know, when I lived in Colorado uh, in my seminary days, uh, I worked for two different, extremely wealthy families. 
And Mrs. Taplin was the matriarch of one of them. She was a kind and considerate soul. Uh, to this day, she still sends us a Christmas gift every year. She's also a lover of trees and flowers, and she decided that she wanted a particular tree on her property, but, but she was worried that it would obscure the neighbor's view of the mountains. And so to get around that, she decided to move her pool, or as the Beverly Hillbillies uh, referred to it, the cement pond. And the only way you do that is you tear out the old one, fill it in, and you build a new one where you want it, which is exactly what she did. And then she planted her tree. See, she intended to get along with her neighbors, and she had the means to do it. It's not always that easy, though. Now, I live on a farm that my mom and dad own, and mom has been gone for a while now, and... um. Yet when she was still there, um, we learned that uh, a neighbor of ours was throwing his dead chickens into our woods. Now, it wasn't uh, healthy, and it attracted all the wrong kind of varmints, and it was illegal. And she didn't like it, and so my dad had to deal with that. So he went and he had a conversation with her neighbor who got in. If I remember uh, the description correctly, I think this is what he what was said. At least it's what's in my mind. The neighbor got all huffy about it. And Dad said to him, look, you can ruin what I think is a good friendship. I'm not going to help you do it, but you can if you want. But you are not going to continue throwing your dead chickens into our woods. And our neighbor calmed down in the face of my father's calmness. He took him at his word, and they are still friends to this day. But it doesn't always work out that way. Rodney and June are people of good character, and they bought a townhome in the middle of a row of townhomes, and they had good neighbors on either side. Then one day, their neighbor decided to move, and they sold their house to a woman that turned out to be not a very considerate person. Uh, I mean, you couldn't actually say she played her music. Uh, rather, she blared it at all hours of the day and night. And talking to her didn't do any good. In fact, it often had the opposite effect. She would turn the volume up. And Rodney and June did everything they could. They insulated the house. They put up sound-dampening material. They ran fans to help muffle the sound. They played their own music louder than they wanted to, even at times when they weren't in the muse for music just to try to drown out that incessant vibes from their neighbor. And nothing really worked. So they called the police. <laughs> and then as now, uh, the police were not happy about those kinds of calls, but finally after numerous calls and complaints, a policeman showed up at the door. And they showed him all the things that they had done to alleviate the problem. And the officer was impressed, but he was still not very sympathetic until that neighbor came home while he was there and turned on her music. And then he could hardly believe what he was hearing. And he decided, I'm going to help these people. They've done everything they can do. And he went next door, he knocked on the door, and when she answered, he told her to turn down the music, at which point she slammed the door in his face. It, it, it was a futile gesture on her part. He called for backup, and they took that woman away in handcuffs. 
and uh, a restraining order was issued, but it didn't do much good. She'd blare her music anyway, and Rodney and June would then have to call the police, and they'd take her away again. And finally, not wanting to live like that anymore, they moved. They warned the person who bought the house what he was getting into, but it, he didn't care because it was only a rental property. You see, if we can, if it's at all possible, we need to get along with our neighbors, not, not just those people who live around us. We need to live in harmony with them if we can. But even when we can't, we're to be the kind of people who bless and never harbor a condemning spirit in our hearts. We're to be the kind of people who share life with those around us. And then we've arrived at the second thought of verse 16, which I would summarize by saying we ought to value all people. The middle part of the verse we read, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And that phrase, uh, people of low positions, rendered really quite literally here. These people are people in our culture and in that culture who we would look down on to. Most people would look down on. And we're not permitted to do that. You see, that kind of thinking comes only from pride, and the word forbids that pride. We're to be the kind of people who are not proud, but who, who do not look down on other people, not even the lowest of the low. Rather, we're to be the kind of people who are willing to spend time with them. We ought to value all human beings. You know, God does. He created them. He sent his son to die in their place. He wants to make them his children, just as he, through the death of his son, made us who are unworthy and undeserving his children when we put our faith in his blood. So God wants to do for others, even the people in the lowest places in our society. In my high school, there was a, a girl named Margie. She was a class or so behind me, and she was not a popular person. Her clothes were um, always shabby and ill-fitted, and she would lean against the wall as she walked down the hallway, and she would hold her hands up as though she were trying to hide behind them. Most of the guys and some of the girls uh, were merciless in their treatment of her. They would tease her, faint with her, and throw things at her. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I could never bring myself to do that. I felt sorry for her. I didn't know how to help her, but I never mistreated her. I always spoke to her, though she would rarely acknowledge me. About five or six years after graduating, I stopped at a Denny's restaurant near my home. And a rather attractive young uh, lady, nicely dressed in a Denny's uniform, came over to seat me. And she walked up to me, and she smiled, and she said, Hello, Larry. It's nice to see you again after these years. Thanks for being so kind to me in high school. And it was Margie. I, I would have never known her. She had become a Christian. And Christ had made all the difference in her life. And, and maybe I made a little difference, even though I wasn't a Christian. 
that's why we're not to be proud, but willing to associate with people of no position. It can make a difference in their life and for all eternity. It changes us too, you know. But the way we treat others is part of the process which forms us, which makes our heart either hard or soft. We ought to live in harmony with our neighbors, if at all possible. We should share a life with them, too. But even when we can't, we're to be the kind of people who bless and don't condemn, who don't curse others in our heart. That's what our hearts are to look like as we deal with those and interact with those on the outside of the faith. The last thing we're going to look at today, the last thought in this passage in verse 16, I take as a warning. The word says that we are never to think that we have arrived. That last sentence in verse 16, do not be conceited or do not be wise in your own estimation, New American Standard, and never be wise in your own sight, English Standard Version. We are not to think that we have arrived. And this is a warning. There is to be an ongoing acknowledgement on our part so important to who we are and what we're becoming that we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are still on the way. We have not arrived. Now we can look back and we can see how far we've come. And we are not the same people we were before we came to faith. And yet when we look in the other direction and we have a glimpse of our Savior as he really is, we know we have a long way to go. So long is the distance, it doesn't seem as though we have moved at all when we're looking in that direction. And the truth is, if it's left up to us, if we're on our own, running under our own steam, we would never make it. We need our Savior every bit as much today as is on that day when we knelt at the cross. We have not arrived. We dare not be conceited or think too highly of ourselves. After all, we know, don't we, that piece of biblical wisdom that has found its way even into the wider culture, pride goeth before the fall. I used to work with Virgil. Uh, he and his friends were motorcycle enthusiasts. I am too, sort of, uh, but I didn't have a bike at the time. Still don't. Other things seem to be more important than that. But one week, Virgil and his friends and his daughter, who was an enthusiast and had her own bike, and she rode, they went on a run. His daughter was way ahead of Virgil when something happened. No one knows for sure what went wrong, and she couldn't say herself, but she dumped that motorcycle and slid along the ground in the aftermath of the crash. And Virgil saw what had happened, and he sped up, and he got up to where she was, and he was in a state of turmoil, near panic. And when he got up next to her, he got off of his motorcycle, and it was still going between 30 and 40 miles an hour when he did. His daughter was fine, just as scrapes and bruises, and most of those were on the motorcycle. But Virgil spent the weeks in the hospital, and his bike was in near total. 
It, it wasn't pride that, that caused Virgil to fall. I know that. He, he was blinded by something else. He was blinded by fear. But that's what pride does. It, it blinds us so we don't see clearly. And that's what a fall, which comes from pride, looks like. When we think too highly of ourselves... When we become conceited, when we think we have arrived, we are blind to the truth and we're setting up ourselves for a fall like getting off a motorcycle at 30 miles an hour. Don't do it. Don't spend too much time thinking about yourself at all, but when you do, be honest in your thinking. We have not arrived. We still have a long way to go. We are Christians. We have been born again. We are the light of the world. We love each other as believers. We love each other we, like we love our immediate family. And even better, because we're learning to put others first. And when it comes to those who are, are not yet believers, we, we seek God's blessing on them, even the ones who persecute us, never wanting God to harm or damn anyone. We do this as a kind of people who share life with our neighbors, as we attempt to live in harmony with them, considering all people to be people of great worth. And never, never do we think that we have still on a journey. We're still on our way. That's who we are. That's who we're meant to be. And so I have to say to you the same thing I said last week. Go now and shine for your heavenly Father in the dark places of our To God be the glory. And all glory be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Father, for your word, for your patience with us, for your love. Thank you that your mercies are indeed new every morning. And thank you that though we struggle now, we know our Savior is coming back. So we look forward to that day. We walk in your grace. And we do all that we can do to honor you. Because you loved us first.